Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. This is the third in our series that will take us up to Christmas and then uh, again in the beginning of the year. as We are looking at the kingdom parables as Jesus was helping us to understand what it is like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We began our series looking at, toward the end as Jesus was uh, describing two men who went out and from very different circumstances and found treasures. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like these treasures. In other words, it is extraordinarily valuable and that there is nothing else that is as worthy and it is worth every sacrifice we make. And so it prompts us to ask ourselves, do we value being citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Does it have real value? Does it have value above everything else in our life? It becomes somewhat of a a spiritual thermometer for us uh, in in our, our lives. Last week we looked at the beginning of the passages that we'll be looking at today, the first part of Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23, where Jesus teaches us uh, from w- the parable of the soil and the sower. It's a familiar parable for any who have been students of the Bible, probably anyone who's been to uh, VBS at some point in their life, uh, very, uh, very common. But as we looked at that last week, we looked at it from a, a different angle as that applies to us, and we come back to this passage again this morning, looking at it uh, from another angle, Uh, and so if you would join with me uh, as we look to God's Word, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 23 of Matthew 13. Here is the Word of God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, They withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can hardly or barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, 
Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Then, the par- then uh, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no roots in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we gather and commit ourselves to your word, to be hearers and students of it, We pray, though, that your spirit would be at work, for we are in need of the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. For we can study, and we can learn, and we can memorize, but all the powers of our intellect are not capable of discerning the spiritual truth and the mine of gold that is here for those who believe, who trust, and in whom you are at work. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would be poured down upon us, that we would have our eyes opened and our hearts prepared to receive what you would speak to us, that you would break the heart that is hard, and that you would mend the one that is broken, that in all things you would be shaping us according to your word, that we might look more like Christ. And it's in him that we pray, he who is the word incarnated. Amen. Stephen was a young man who had given his kidney to his sister who had a history of kidney failure. Her first kidney failure uh, symptoms started showing when she was 23. Stephen donated his kidney to his sister when she was 40 years old. In response to this gift and the new life that she was given, she went back to school to finish her her study in music and then spent uh, spent the next number of years being a caretaker for their grandfather until he reached the age of 99. She honored her brother by living life to its fullest, maximizing her gifts, her experience, and then loving someone else that they both cared for. And this was a a beautiful story that I I read uh, not long ago, and it struck a chord, not only because it's a a beautiful story that inspires toward good works and and shows that what happens at times when you care and give yourself away, but it also is a, a great example of the concept of pay it forward. Some of you may have seen the movie of that name a couple of years ago that came out. Haley Joe Osmond was a little kid, uh, and I think Helen Hunt and, uh, was in that, Kevin Spacey. Uh, and it was a movie about a, a young boy who started and propelled a, a movement of good deeds. And so the concept of pay it forward was to do a good deed for somebody else, but rather than go, doing a good deed for the person who did something for you, you go do something for someone else and continue to pay it forward. And that's really the whole concept of pay it forward, that the beneficiary of a gift or of a good deed not try to repay the one who gave them so much as 
to bless other people and to give a, good, uh, give a gift or do a good deed for somebody else. And while that's inspiring, it's also a, a wonderful picture. It's a great analogy of the Christian life. Because you and I who are in Christ are recipients of an in, indescribable gift. We're told in the scriptures that we are recipients. We are the beneficiaries of something that we could never possibly earn, something that we had forfeited long ago, but we were alienated with God, uh, from God. We were at odds with We were enemies of God, and God made us his own by giving us the gift of faith to believe in what, the gift that he's given us in his son of Jesus Christ. And so in addition to the gift of his son and the gift of faith, through the gift of faith, we are able to receive the gift of salvation. And we are blessed by God's graciousness and his pouring out gift after gift after gift to us. And we are the beneficiaries, and we have received that. We come, we worship, we celebrate that gift every time we gather together and hopefully every day of our lives. What is it that God requires of us as as a response to the gift that we have? Well, one, he requires us that we would grow in his grace, the gift of his grace, as he commands us through Peter, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we do like the sister did. We begin to look at the gift that we have and we maximize that. We grow in it and we we become what God intends us to be. And so we grow in the grace and that grace is multiplied as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what Jesus is like, because the whole purpose or what God is doing in us is to make us to be more like Christ. So we grow in that, and we looked at that last week somewhat as we looked at this parable, realizing that our, our, our hearts are like a soil, and that we, through, the time, uh, through life, we have times that are hard, sometimes things are tough, uh, sometimes we are more fertile than others, and we need to be aware of where our heart is as the seed of that gospel is, is planted in us. But we also have been given a gift, and we have been commissioned. Those who are in Christ, Jesus has said to his followers, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And we are those who are are commissioned. And part of the Christian life is not simply to to soak in all of the blessings that God has given to us, but it is also to be the extenders of grace to people who are around us, to one another in the church, to people who are around us at work or in our neighborhoods, wherever we happen to be, and even to intentionally take the gospel, the seed of the gospel, and be extenders of that grace to the peoples of the earth. We've been commissioned, as had the disciples who had heard this parable in the first place. And with that understanding that we've been commissioned to be not only the, the beneficiaries, but also uh, the, the benefactors or, or the means by which God, uh, the means God uses to reach the nations and our neighbors, uh, this parable has some practical considerations for us and, and applies to our heart. Again, we looked at this last week, and I suggested to you that there are at least two applications, or I see two primary applications, uh, the first of which is how it applies to us as believers in, in the cultivating of our own heart continually so that we have fertile soil so that the gospel can continue to bear fruit in us and among us. And the second is the more common one that I want to look at today. It is the whole idea of evangelism, of, of preparing the field, and this parable provides us a number of practical insights for us because we are those who have been made the the guardians we've been we've been blessed we are given the message of the gospel the seed has been entrusted to us and we're not mere caretakers we don't stand guard on the message alone we're actually called to do something with it 
Now, as we look at this passage, we see a couple of things that happens. One is it, it, it teaches us, uh, it prepares uh, the sower, and it also helps us to prepare the field. It prepares the sower in this way, and that's us, because it reminds us that not everyone is going to respond in the way that we would like to see them respond. We go out and we share the gospel with friends, family, uh, mission, and sometimes we don't get the response that we desire. Shouldn't be surprising, Jesus here in this particular parable, looks like the odds are only one in four. Jesus gives, describes four soils, and only uh, one of them bears fruit. And so we see, even in this parable, that when the gospel seed is, is spread, it's not always going to have the response that we would like to see when we are casting it around. And that's helpful for me, and it, it explains a lot to me. It explains Robert. Robert was a man I met a few years ago. He is the fourth generation owner of a fish warehouse in Pittsburgh. And along with that, there is a, a seafood restaurant in the Strip District of Pittsburgh and has the best white fish sandwich you'll find anywhere in the United States, so far as I've found. I had periodically would meet people uh, uh, there, and one Thursday afternoon and several years ago, I met a friend of mine there, and we, we met, talked for a while about issues going on in his church and, and things going on in, in mine. And uh, as we left that day and parted, went our way, I went back to my office, which is about 20 miles away, and uh, went to uh, begin uh, some more preparations for my message a few days to come, only to realize I had left my briefcase and my books and my sermon and my flash drive in a briefcase at the restaurant. So I went back Friday morning to look to see if I could find my briefcase and all my stuff. And I was looking around the restaurant, and Robert came out and asked what I was looking for. And I said, I, I, I left my briefcase here yesterday and has uh, some books in it that I need. And he said, well, what kind of books? And I said, well, mostly theological books, commentaries. He said, well, that's interesting. And he asked what I did, and I told him. And then he realized I was a pastor of an evangelical church. And he said, well, I grew up Irish Catholic, and, and the woman I'm, I'm living with right now is Muslim, and we have some differences, and I wonder, what do you think about this? <laughs> and I said, I, I think I want my book bag. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we talked while we looked for the book bag, and we went to an uh, uh, area not far from where uh, I had sat the day before, and I uh, hadn't really paid attention, but over in a the corner there was a table, and on the table there was a stack of books, and there was a piece of paper on top of the stack, the stack of books. And so I went over, and Robert was right behind me, and on the top of these books, which were my books, was the note that said, thanks for the bag. Um, and so somebody had taken my, you know, canvas uh, L.L. Bean monogrammed bag. So the joke's on them, unless their initials are WDG. But anyway, that's... Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and, but Robert was, he was just incensed that somebody would take a bag and then, you know, uh, the idolatry of his Roman I Irish Catholic uh, background and said, a pastor's bag to boot. And, and I, I, I would let him go with that feeling. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but we continued to talk. So he said, let's go back to the office. We went back to the office. He introduced me to his brother and he said, somebody took this guy's briefcase. It was, it, and, 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 but he left the books. And the guy said, well, what, his brother said, what kind of books? And so we started all over again. And so they invited me back because they were curious. He told them about some things, and, and, and he had, in one sense, some questions. Things were tense, as you might imagine, in a 
home of an Irish Catholic and a Muslim, and neither obviously practicing faithfully, but having events. So I was invited back, and I met with them. But when I got back the next week and sat down with them, they were very pleasant. They were very nice, but they had absolutely no spiritual interest whatsoever. I mean, they knew that they had invited me. We talked. I got a fish sandwich out of it. I don't think it was worth as much as a bag, but it was, you know, that was, that was it. And so occasionally we would exchange emails, but there was no more spiritual conversation. I had the opportunity to share the gospel with them, but it had been taken because Robert's heart was just hard. It was just, that was the nature of his heart. And so Jesus telling me that there are sometimes you're going to cast a seed and they're going to be hard people. And you've got Roberts in your own life, people that you love or people that you know, whether you love them or not, and you've shared the gospel. And just, you had the opportunity to share the gospel clearly and nothing. Helps me understand Casey. Casey was a neighbor of ours in Georgia. We knew his, well, I'd say wife, I, I hope wife now, uh, but uh, first, you know, they had a, a son together that was the same age as our, uh, our oldest, and uh, they had played together in um, Casey's, uh, uh, um, I'll use wife because otherwise I'm going to, you know, just for uh, the purposes of speaking now, but she, she grew up professing, in a, in a, uh, her mother was a professing Christian, uh, the, the woman in the, the household. She, she had made a profession of faith, and, and really, uh, it seemed to be a very sweet, and in one sense, genuine, but her father was abusive. She got out of the house as early as she could. She married very, very young just to get out of the house, uh, and then there was a divorce. She was left uh, alone, and Casey came along, was willing to take her in, wasn't particularly gracious. She was a beautiful young lady, so uh, on his part, but he took her in, and they were living together, but she was bothered by it. You know, her, her faith, uh, whatever it was, realized her life was not consistent with what her faith uh, said that she, how she should live. And so she wanted to get married. Casey was willing to get married, and so they asked if I would perform the wedding, and I told them that uh, I would be happy to under a few circumstances. I said, I'll do a wedding for two believers. I'll do a wedding for, no two, uh, for two non-believers. I, I can't mix and match. And that I required counseling uh, sessions before I'll do any, any wedding. And so the first, uh, they agreed, and so I went over the first time and met with them. And I'd met Casey before, but not much, and, and, um, and we talked. And so I asked them first thing is about their testimonies. I heard hers, and then it was time for Casey. And Casey said he too had gotten saved. I thought, great, this will be easy. I said, well, tell me about it. When did you get saved? He said he was a junior in high school, and his high school baseball coach had taken everybody to a church that day, and the pastor had given an altar call, and the coach leaned over and told Casey he thought it would be a good idea if he went up the aisle too. So Casey went. He said, that's when I got saved. And I said, great. Um, I said, just curious, what did you get saved from? He said, well, that's a good question. I said, I thought so. Um, I said, it would seem to me that if I would go around saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, it, I, at some point or another, I would want to know what I was saved from. And he said, well, I guess from hell. And I said, well, that's a good answer. That's, that's true. But then I began to explain, you were also saved from God by God, but from God, the full wrath of God that deserved to be poured out on everyone who is alienated from him, who is God's enemy. That went right over his head. He had absolutely no idea. He sort of began to shut down um, because he knew that we were going in a direction he wasn't used to. He got the impression, rightly, that I was suspicious that his conversion may not be a genuine. 
you know, I assured him, look, I'm not the judge of this. I'm just there to try to help him to understand. But Casey is an example of one who was shallow, who bought a message, heard a message of the gospel, and responded to it in a way that made him go. There was a sense in which he believed, and it bore no fruit whatsoever. It just dried up uh, in a short period of time. And Jesus tells us that there are people in our lives, that there are going to be people in our lives that are like this, that made that profession or seemed to show a, uh, some level of response, but then it just, it just gone in the, in the blink of an eye. Helps me understand Marina. Marina was a woman that had attended uh, one of the churches I have served, and she had had a very difficult life. Her husband had recently passed away. She was experiencing some serious health issues, and she had a brother who was diagnosed with a terminal ailment. And all of this was within about an eight-month period. On top of that, the job that she had was, uh, was not a particularly good job. She was frustrated. She'd been going to a Bible study with some of the women in our church. She had a number of questions, and she came, and we talked, and she uh, responded and seemed to show a, a beautiful response to the gospel, and she was hungry and asking questions. And then every once in a while, she would just disappear. I'd send an email, I'd make a phone call, I'd get no response, and we would have months would go by, and I'd get no response. And then all of a sudden, Marina would show up again, and she would first apologize for being away. Just things got hectic in her life, and she just had a lot of questions. And so we would talk, and, and it was a cycle of this. The last that we were able to talk at any great length, Marina was really struggling with the question of her salvation. She had received Christ. She understood that. But she was, she was very concerned. Well, what about her brother who was, about, who, who, was, who was terminal? What about her husband who had passed? I had no answers. I didn't know either of these people. I tried to help her to understand God's grace is greater than any answer that I can give. God is far more gracious than I am, but at the same time, there is no hope for anyone apart from Christ. But I don't know the relationship either of them had. And she was just, she was broken by that to the point that she couldn't believe if she could trust God if she didn't know the answers for other people in her life. And I think that if I was to guess, I would say that she was probably a believer, but just concerns and things that take place in life just began to choke any maturity that she could have had out. She had, was full of questions. She was hungry, but there was no fruit being born because Marina is a person who had the cares of life, serious cares, not even sinful cares, but cares of life choking out the fruit, of the gospel, the fruit that the seed of the gospel often produces. So when I read this parable, I'm, I'm helped to understand people like that and realize that I'm, Jesus is saying this should not be a surprise that I'm running into people like that. And it shouldn't be a surprise to you either if you share the gospel that there are people in your life, whether they are friends or family members or, or people that you work with, whoever they are, that you're going to encounter people. And as you try to share faithfully the gospel, they're going to respond in a number of different ways. We shouldn't be surprised when we see it because Jesus tells us it's so. And that could be depressing, or at least discouraging. You know, one in four, we just know these, only one of the people brought up, and, and, and that could be very discouraging. I mean, one in four doesn't seem to be uh, very much, and it, and it doesn't need to be discouraging. One says one in four is not necessarily all that bad. I was curious as I was uh, wrestling through this uh, passage this week, and so uh, I uh, decided to uh, look up the batting averages of uh, both of the teams that were in the World Series right now. 
Uh, you know, the Tigers were 11 out of 23 non-pitchers uh, were batting 250 or better. That means, uh, means only less than half of the guys on their team, on the, you know, the team in the World Series, was getting on base, safely hitting uh, to get on base one out of four times. Yeah, the rest of the team would be glad to have one and four. That would be great. And they're making a pretty good living uh, to being just one and four as their measuring stick. And so if you look at it from one perspective, one and four is not that bad. And if you think about it even from an evangelical cultural standpoint, if one and four people that were professing Christians in the United States actually were bearing the fruit of Christ in their lives, what impact would we have? We wouldn't be lamenting what was going on in our culture. We would be celebrating the advancement of the gospel in very powerful ways. So one in four is not that bad. But that's not even our greatest hope. See, Jesus here is saying one in four, but he's not giving us statistics. He's giving us types. He's not saying one in four people that you share the gospel with, and so don't expect a lot but one in four. He's saying, look, this is the types of people that you're going to encounter. And some people are hard. Some people are shallow. Some people, it's just tough to bear fruit, and some people are very fruitful. And even there, they have a variety of fruitfulness, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. That's just God and his providence, what God's going to give to, to however, however he blesses and endows uh, the people as you share the gospel, or even in our own lives. He's simply giving types, not giving us stats. Jesus isn't giving us a number. We have no idea how many people fall into the category of the fruitful soil. But we've got no reason to believe that that's any small number. The promise made to Abraham is that his descendants, which we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, all believers are, his descendants would be like the numbers of the sands on the shores. I'm not particularly mathematical, but I have no idea what that means. I have no idea how many there are. What did I read? Was it 27 miles of beach on Virginia Beach? Is that right? Or something like that? Uh, somebody... I don't know. Take a hand. How, how many? That's a lot of sand. All right. That was, you're, you're getting ahead of me. I'm trying to preach here. I got a point to make. Now, um, but, uh, now, look, I'm sure there's somebody who's mathematical and any one of you engineer types who can be able to figure it out, the density and the length and whatever else and the grain of sand and how mass that is. And you can figure it out, and that's fine. I, I, I probably couldn't comprehend the number. I just know what Bob said. It's a lot. There's a lot of sand. And that's one beach. So we've got no reason to believe that there's any small number of people who are going to respond and bear fruit in their lives. But Jesus helps us here and he prepares us as the sowers by helping us to know what to expect. It helps us to deal with very understandable frustrations. If we are prepared for something, we're not going to be as frustrated by results that don't go the way that we want. It also helps us to understand what it is that perhaps we need to do. See, as sowers of the word, we are farmers entrusted with the seed. We see Jesus' principle here saying, look, you go, need to go out and you need to do this. This is what you're going to encounter. But not only is he preparing us as the sowers, but I think he's reminding us in this that there's a need to prepare the soil sometimes, that we need to prepare the field that is around us. Because sometimes the soil needs to be cultivated. We need to realize, at least when it's the case of the gospel, the seed is never the problem. It's, it's always the soil. The seed will bear fruit if it's in soil that is prepared to bear the fruit. Sometimes the seed falls into soil that is not prepared to receive it. And I, and I read this, and I wonder if Jesus perhaps had in mind Jeremiah 4.3 as he was teaching this. In Jeremiah 4.3, uh, Jesus is speaking uh, or the Lord is speaking, 
And he says this. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. In other words, he's given some common sense direction to those who are going to be sowing seed, are going to be planting seed someplace. The Lord is speaking that in the prophecy. Jesus is describing types of soil here, but even as he's bringing up uh, the prophecies that, of the Old Testament, he certainly was aware that this is what the Lord had said, and it certainly falls appropriate for us as we are out and being faithful that we may at times be encouraged to break up the soil and prepare the ground that we are going to lay the, lay the seed in. Now, I'm not trying to get ahead of the game because one of the things, I don't have time to deal with it today, and we'll come back another time. Very clearly in this parable is the whole idea of the doctrine of election. I mean, if you read what Jesus is saying about why he teaches in parables in the first place, it's very stunning. They ask him, why are you teaching in parables? And he's saying, so you get it, and they don't. I mean, that's what he's saying there. In fact, we're going to fulfill the prophecy. Their hearts are not prepared, and so I'm teaching in a way. They hear the words. They're getting the same message, but they're not prepared. They can't, they can't tolerate. And so uh, they're not prepared for that. So I'm not trying to get ahead and presume that what you do and what I do is going to uh, make up for something that we are the ones doing the saving. But there is a faithfulness that we are called to in everything that we do for the sake of the gospel. And as we look at this, we, we need to ask ourselves, how are we to break up the soil? The first question we might ask is, how did Jesus break up, the, uh, break up the soil? And I would suggest to you that Jesus actually broke up the soil by pounding it and, and breaking it up. He took the law to it, and, and he ratcheted it up. First thing he says, here's the standard. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, right there, that probably should give most people some idea of the condition that we're not perfect, and if that's the standard, I have a problem. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, you've, you've heard about the issue of adultery, where that's inappropriate. I'm telling you, if you've even had lustful thoughts, you're already guilty of adultery. He's ratcheting up the law. You know that you're not supposed to kill anybody? I tell you, if you've even been angry with your brother, you're already guilty of murder. And so Jesus is just zeroing in and showing the reality of our hearts and showing the great need that we have to receive the seed of the gospel. So how do we do it? Depends on how we present the gospel. Let me give this illustration. Just imagine that there is an airline flight that is inter intercontinental, moving, going from perhaps New York to London. In the middle of the flight, the little light goes on for the flight attendant. She goes in to talk with the pilot. The pilot says, I want you to remain calm, but we have some problems. There is a leak in our fuel line, and so our fuel is not sufficient to get us to our destination. The wing doesn't look too good either. We don't have enough fuel to get all the way to London, and we can't turn around because we don't have enough fuel to get back either. And so we don't have any choice but to continue on our path, but we're going to have to make a crash landing. We're going to ditch into the Atlantic Ocean. Now, the Coast Guard has already been notified, and they are able to track us. They know where we are, and so there's a good projection of where we'll be, and so we should be okay. But we need all the passengers to be aware and to take the precautions necessary. Now, imagine that's a scenario, and there's one of two ways in which this can, re that can, be resp can respond. One, in one scenario, the flight attendant goes out, she calms herself and prepares herself, and then she grabs a hold of one of the life vests, and she goes out, and she takes the microphone, and she said, can I have your attention? Every one of you has one of these pretty yellow things under your seats, and I want to encourage you to just put it on. You know, if you blow it up right, and you just put it on around your neck, in fact, when you lean back, it can be a really nice pillow, and I just want to encourage you to try it, 
See if you like it. If you don't like it, you can always take it off. And how many of you would like to try one? And you have a few hands kind of going up, you know, not sure whether they're bored or just uh, or whatever reason they just don't humor her. And so a few hands may go up. The second scenario, the stewardess, excuse me, that's the not appropriate language anymore, uh, the flight attendant, calms herself, takes the microphone, and then takes the, and, and takes the uh, life vest, life uh, preserver. And she said, I, I need to keep, I want you all to be calm. We are experiencing some difficulties. We should all be okay if everybody follows the instructions. But we are going to probably, we're going to be landing in the ocean. Uh, the Coast Guard has been called. Each of you has a life preserver under your seat. If you will follow the instructions in my example and put this on, your chances of survival escalate uh, tremendously. How many people on that flight are going to put the life preserver on? <laughs> now, I'm not trying to give a sales pitch, but see, the problem is I am convinced that the typical evangelical message of evangelism is far more like the first one than the second. We tell people, look at Jesus, sweet and mild. Try him out. All your problems will go away. And if it doesn't work, what have you lost? And people say, well, it sounds okay. And we wonder why they fizzle away when the difficulties of life or where real problems in life come and choke out any possible fruit. They didn't see the power in the first place. They didn't see the demand. They had no idea of their need. They had no value of the kingdom. And yet, if we prepare the soil in the real way with the true message of the gospel and helping people understand the condition that we have, which is hopeless and helpless, and God in his great love and mercy for you, for me, and for the people, uh, for, for the world. Here is the way that you can be have life. Soil is better prepared for those who God is calling. The first is a problem of poorly, provide, uh, poorly preparing the soil. It's also a problem of corrupting the seed because it's not even a clear gospel. The gospel might be present and corrupted seed may bear fruit, but I assume pure seed bears more fruit and better fruit. We who have been entrusted with the message of the gospel need to be very clear about what we are called to do and how we are to do it. And I just simply want to challenge you as you think about your life and the fact that we are called to be sowers of the seed of the gospel with the people in our lives and together to the ends of the earth. How are we going to do it? My hope is that we would be a people who sow the true seed of the gospel. One last thing. Now I'm on borrowed time, but it's important. Some of you have been sharing the gospel with people in your lives, or you know people in your lives have heard the gospel. Maybe it's a sibling that grew up in the same Christian household. It's somebody that you've shared with, and it just seems to just kind of lay there. And you're thinking, did I do this wrong? Should I have better prepared the soil before I put the seed down? And I don't know whether the answer is yes or no in that situation, but I, I know that in Western culture we are are told and we understand that usually you're supposed to prepare the ground before you plant the seed. There's an Australian scholar, theologian, uh, Leon Morris, who wrote something that became helpful for me and I hope will be an encouragement to you. And he acknowledges that while in the Western world it's very common practice to prepare the soil, then plant the seed, 
apparently in Palestinian, ancient Palestine, it was not uncommon for people to scatter the seed like this and then plow the ground. And when they were plowing the ground, it was sinking the seed deep into the ground. Now, you may have scattered the seed in the lives of the people around you, or the seed may already be scattered in some way. The answer, then, is not to say, I did it wrong, and then spend your time wringing your hands. But through loving them, help them to understand the condition of their hearts, the condition of our relationship with God if we are apart from Christ, so that you can break up the ground in a loving way, and the seed that has already been scattered can, be penetrate, can penetrate deep and bear fruit where God has ordained for it to bear fruit. You haven't done it wrong. And you are not too late. Just continue to be faithful with what you do. And I thank the Lord for giving us this parable that shows us not only how we can look at our own hearts and grow, but how we can be faithful to him as we are sowers of the seed. And I'm hopeful that as we consider this, that we would be a people who can, who can sow well and plow deep and see great fruit among our friends our neighbors, this city, and even in the nations. Let me pray. Father, as we come, I do thank you for this word and the encouragement that you give to us, both by revealing to us what is and what we will see, and revealing and reminding us of your power and your work. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who would not, out of frustration, stop sharing the gospel, that we would not, out of fear of failure or doing it wrong, stop being sowers of the seed. But Lord, knowing that it is you who must bring in, raise up the crops, that we would be free to go, knowing that it is all grace and that you will bring about the harvest. Lord, find us faithful. I pray in Jesus.